0: Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Today I'm speaking with Andrew Yang. Andrew has a new book, just out today, I believe. The title is Forward, Notes on the Future of Our Democracy. And he also has a new political party, the Forward Party. And in today's podcast, we cover all of the relevant experiences and issues that led him to write the book and found the party we cover the obvious brokenness of our political system the importance of things like open primaries and rank choice voting as a means of reforming it we talk about his experience running for the presidency and for the job of mayor in new york city very different experiences and um We cover many other interesting issues here, politically and socially. Anyway, it's always great to speak with Andrew, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And now I bring you Andrew Yang. I am back with Andrew Yang. Andrew, thanks for joining me again.
1: Sam, it's great to be back with you. It's, uh, you know, Anytime I talk to you, something good's going on.
0: Right. We're going to launch you in, in one direction or another every time we speak. That's uh, that's what I'm getting used to now. First, we should mention at the top that uh, you have a new book. Uh, the title is Forward, Notes on the Future of Our Democracy, which is um, essentially your memoir of being a, a presidential candidate, which is very had to be a fascinating experience, and um, it comes across in the book. And then you're... Basically, your pitch for the ways in which we can change our politics and the and the role for the forward party uh, in that conversation, and so I think we'll we'll save that that final piece for the end. But um, let's talk about the the nature of the problem. You say very early in the book that um, democracy itself is losing legitimacy. So much of the book is is a look at the ways in which our system is broken, and this. Is brokenness relates to politics, it relates to the media, it relates to a fundamental distrust in institutions that is now spreading to catastrophic effect, and it also relates to the issue that really launched your presidential run, which is the, is a growing concern around inequality, you know, you know wealth inequality in particular, as, as you wanted to address by UBI, but also with respect to education and healthcare and other variables. So I I think there's really three problems we could talk about before we start getting into solutions. Politics, you know, two-party politics, the media, and inequality in general. And I thought we could just kind of track through them and get your view on them as a candidate, maybe in both as, you know, in your presidential run. And I'd be interested to hear how the run for mayor of New York was a different experience. So let, let's start with politics. What was it like to run for president, and, and what was it like? Let's take it from the, the beginning. I know we've talked about this a little bit, but I mean your book is is so interesting on this point. What was it like to do this when no one knew who you were? I mean that and for the longest time that was the case. And so I mean at the outset it seems like a completely Quixotic enterprise to declare your candidacy for the presidency and you know the reactions of friends and people uh, who would support you uh, out of out of some prior relationship without any expectation that you could possibly get anywhere. yeah, take us back to that to the beginning
1: sure I, I do tell some fun stories in the book about how I'd go to my son's birthday party, and another dad would say, "Oh, what do you do?" and then I didn't want to say I'm running for president because I would have seemed crazy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I, I would say, ah, I'm in policy, or I'm an author, then uh, my evasiveness would often not work. And then I'd wind up saying, I'm actually running for president now. And then we'd have a 30 minute conversation about that. And at the end of it, they would not sign up to volunteer for my campaign. They'd be like, Oh, that's really interesting. Good luck with that. So you, you can imagine why I wouldn't really want to have that conversation over and over again. Yeah. And during that time. I'm so grateful to you, Sam, because you and I sat down for a conversation like this one, and your podcast really launched my campaign in multiple ways. One, the people who listened decided to take an interest in my campaign and, and supported and donated, uh, which I was incredibly grateful for. But then this Iowan who was organizing something called a wingding was a huge fan of yours, and decided to invite me to Iowa to speak in 2018 on the basis of our conversation. Mm. So you were a better friend to me than a lot of others, (laughs) despite the fact that (laughs) at that point we were uh, still just, you know, getting to know each other. And you said something to another journalist that I really appreciated. You said, well, you know, I don't know Andrew that well, but he seems like a fairly normal fellow who just decided to ruin his life by running for president. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i heard that i was like oh huh? i'm so glad that came through <laughs> but the er- the early months of the campaign were like that where uh, i had a vision for what the campaign could be and uh that vision slowly started to grow thanks to people like you and the people who worked on my campaign
0: yeah this this is one of the the points you make in the book which um was a, a genuine surprise for me i mean it, it shouldn't have been I've, I've certainly noticed this process i mean it, it was it was all on the surface, but until you pointed it out, I was someone who, along with I think most people, assumed that there is a kind of egocentricity and narcissism and just a search for ego gratification that is informing many presidential runs, and I mean that that may be the case in in certain candidates, but what you make clear again which really should not have been surprising but you you make it so vividly clear in discussing uh, the experience of Marianne Williamson and uh, Joe Sestak that the process for most people unless you you already happen to be a front runner for some reason or another the process is just ego-annihilating maybe you can talk about that
1: yeah you show up my first trip to New Hampshire there were literally two people there waiting for me. Maybe one, and one person just happened to be there and and politely pretended they were there for me. And that was an entire day. Uh, I went to a rally in Iowa Labor Day in 2018 that drew 12 people maybe, Mm -hmm. and none of them were there for me either. Uh, And these were everyday occurrences. And keep in mind at this point, uh, though I was a very, very anonymous presidential candidate, you know, I'd still done some things in my life. (laughs) Like like, I'm still like a person who like values his time and, you know, has a family and stuff. So you you would do things all the time that weren't positively reinforcing. And the the media, uh, as I write in the book, is a huge part of this dynamic where the media will completely sideline you if you're not one of the major candidates. And when they do mention you, they will mock you. (laughs) It really Mm -hmm. is the way it goes, as happened with uh, many other candidates and happened to me to some measure. Uh, And so when you talk about the problems I outline in the book, the media gauntlet was such a huge part of running for president. And I'm now convinced that that's core to our problems. Like It's core to why we can't seem to make any real progress
0: if memory serves, you weren't mocked so much. I mean, when I think about the mocking part, I I do think about Marianne Williamson, who, as you point out, in her own life, you know, had a, you know, a very successful career. Lots of people loved her. She made a lot of money. She had a very big platform. She ran a successful charity. I mean, she's she's very accomplished in her world. I mean, you, you might not agree with her metaphysics in the end, but she really had a a very comfortable life that, you know, she didn't need to screw up. And then she runs for the presidency and is immediately framed as a kind of uh, punchline. And it's, um, I think you could have predicted it with with something like 100% certainty that that would have happened. But that version happens, but then there are the people who have have a, have a fair amount of gravitas in terms of their biographies, where there's there's no obvious joke to make at their expense, but they're just utterly ignored by the media. And and, and for you, you kind of you fell more into that bin. And, and there were there were some egregious. I mean, the, the example. Maybe say something about Joe Sestak for a second, because you know I wrote in the margin of your book when you mentioned him, I, I literally wrote who. A question mark because I, I, I have never heard of Joe Sestak, right?
1: <laughs> so, did, did you then Google him and look him up? After no, I, the I, I haven't
0: yet. I'm a blank slate with the, apart from what I read in your book. He's got, you know, give me a little color on, on Joe for a second. Uh,
1: Joe, as a PhD from Harvard, uh, was uh, an admiral in the US Navy, was entrusted with thousands of lives, and was a two term member of Congress from Pennsylvania. So he's a very, very serious person who had spent decades in service and had put his life on the line for the country. When he decided to run for president, it was like he didn't exist. And it was somewhat mystifying. I spent time with Joe. So that's another thing that happens on the trail, Sam, is that I have hung out with virtually all of the other candidates in union halls and uh, people's uh, driveways and at the fair and the steak fry. So you do get a sense of people. And Mm. I have spent time with Joe and Marianne and, uh, many others, but Joe's a great guy, a great man, a real Patriot. Uh, he does have a lot of gravitas where he's commanded thousands of people. The media treated him like a non-entity. And because he's a committed individual, he even walked across the state of New Hampshire as a way to try and generate attention for his campaign. Completely ignored, mm-hmm. and when it was mentioned, it was mentioned as kind of a look at the crazy person sort of thing. I thought that was deeply unfair because, you know, again, if you look at right- Joe's record, he's a very serious individual who should have been uh, given a fair hearing.
0: Yeah, and in your case, there were was, was um, some fairly stark and egregious efforts to ignore you, literally like, like fundraising, if memory serves, there were like fundraising graphics where it like, you was know, showing the candidates who had raised a certain amount of money or, or gone up in the polls enough to make debates, and you were left out where people who had raised less money and were ranked lower than you were, were left in the graphics. This happened most on MSNBC. How much of this? uh, I think you uncovered at one point that there was a policy that that you should just not be talked about. You know, how much of this was inadvertent, and how much of it was actually an explicit effort to disappear your campaign?
1: It happened consistently enough where you really could not chalk it up to neglect or incompetence (laughs) or, or omission. I think the exact count was a dozen times, and. Uh, we heard later from a producer, Ariana Picari, who was at MSNBC during that time, that she was given a list of candidates not to ever invite on the show or interview. And I was on that list. Hmm. So there was definitely a decision made at some point. And if you wanted to hypothesize, you know, I, I believe that there is an ownership structure at MSNBC where you could draw a pretty direct line to people who were backing Joe. But at the time, I tried to give them the benefit of the doubt. And it was only later in the campaign when I had just gone through a debate that MSNBC had moderated where they clearly wanted nothing to do with me, where I decided to say, look, like, I'm not going to appear on MSNBC unless they start actually treating us fairly. And at that point, they completely omitted any mention of me from the race for the following month plus during really the final stretch of the campaign. So it was an important time. It, it was most stark when I actually made the seventh debate stage, which was a very significant piece of news. I was the last non-white candidate to make the debate stage. And MSNBC decided not to mention that, even though that was uh, mainstream news for just about everybody.
0: Hmm. So uh, uh, there's going to be more to say about the media in a minute, because it's just an enormous problem uh, on many fronts now. But going back to your presidential run before, well, really at any point, what, what was the most surprising part about this process to you? I mean, you, you must have had some expectations of what it would be like. In, in what ways were those expectations violated?
1: It was around my treatment by certain types of institutions where I kind of imagined that maybe some people would be excited to have a conversation about the automation of jobs and technology and AI. And some people might even be interested in or excited by, by my being the first Asian American man to run for president as a Democrat, like some people who really love to talk about the firsts mm-hmm. in various categories. And neither of those things was true. <laughs> it, it, it turns right. out that, that, that what I think of as journalistic organizations of fact did not seem to care about the decimation of millions of manufacturing jobs and the ongoing automation uh, and dehumanization of the economy. And what it made me realize, Sam, and made me more grateful to thinkers like you, is that there is a particular discourse and language in media, there's a particular discourse and language in politics, and they aren't the discussion of fact in the way that you'd hope. And I I thought they were going in. Hmm. And so my relative success and performance ended up being based upon all of these behaviors and adaptations that I adopted (laughs) in order to try and compete. But it it was very discouraging to me that it it seemed like when I was talking about economic facts and figures, it was like I was speaking uh, a foreign language.
0: Yeah. So yeah, that's that's something that you go through in the book as well. I mean, just the hacks you found for a system that really didn't care to hear from you on substantive issues, but what could be Exploited by a a dance video, uh, or a workout video. What did you begin to think? And I guess, what do you think now about this system by which we pick our leaders? Right. I mean, it's just. I mean, we're, we're going to get into the the political reforms you you recommend. But w- I mean, it's just. It had to be bizarre to see that the way to get traction. I mean, the the, the the classic moment of this from years past, which has been much remarked upon. But like the the moment. Where you know Hillary Clinton's campaign was transformed when she shed a tear in a diner over whatever it was. you know it's like the fact that the attention of the media can be swung by, I guess the human interest component of a story without any substance, and it really can't be swung by substance, it seems.
1: Yes, I characterize it as a reality TV show at one point during the debates. But there are narratives and characters that the media in particular is interested in enhancing and elevating. And that's really the crux of the coverage. In my case, my leaning into humor or physical activities Mm. (laughs) or whatever it was, uh, ended up being positive in terms of our coverage and the energy. But Ezra Klein said something about how we're collapsing systemic issues into personalized narratives. And I I think that's like a reasonable characterization of of a lot of the political coverage. Though there is a real agenda behind a lot of it, uh, where the, the media just decides to elevate certain characters and ignore others. I think ignore is their main weapon of choice when they want someone not to get anywhere, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think. Uh, And then kind of like slightly mocking snide ridicule might be like their second weapon of choice. And then among the approved characters, then they'll constantly be trying to characterize people and talk about something around their uh, relationships, behavior, emotions. One thing that mm-hmm. happened to me a lot on the trail, and this is very true of this process, is they are constantly digging for vulnerability. 99 times out of 100, if they find a vulnerability, it's not going to be good for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, They're not going to be like, oh, this person's really human and vulnerable. Isn't that right. nice? They'd be like, oh, look at this. So that, that, That's one of the things that unfortunately makes politicians into automatons over time.
0: So how was running for mayor of New York different. I mean, one is a a different office, although, you know, unlike most uh, mayor races, it it does have a national uh, lens on it, but it strikes me that one big difference had to be that by the time you you ran for mayor, you were pretty famous, you know, you were not, you were, I think, naturally viewed, I certainly viewed you as a front-runner without even looking at the polls, because of of your your national platform at that point. How is your experience of being a candidate different?
1: It was a completely different dynamic to your point, Sam, where on the presidential trail, I was continuously trying to build up energy and race against oblivion. Uh, Whereas in the mayoral, I was the center of attention essentially from day one. I will say that the media coverage tended to be quite negative or questioning. And they would chalk it up to my being the front runner, though I think there might have been a couple of other dynamics. And so in, in many ways, it was kind of the opposite of my presidential run, where, mm. where uh, instead of being the unlikely underdog, constantly doing things to get energy, um, instead, I was like the front runner who was continuously under attack by other candidates through the press often because that was their best way to try and win.
0: Yeah. Yeah and, and so what do you what do you make of the fact uh that you didn't win maybe if you had to ascribe it to a couple of uh most important causes what 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 happened?
1: I think the single biggest variable was the reopening of the city and then the crime surge uh, in New York where it was on the front page of at least some of the papers every day and that being the number one concern, heavily favored Eric Adams because he was a police officer. Mm-hmm. Earlier, the main narrative was around reopening and economic recovery, and uh, those were things that people saw as a strength of mind.
0: Right, right. Okay, so let's just talk about our, the, 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 the political system as it is and uh, what to do about it, because I, I think wherever someone is on the uh, on the spectrum of of political concern, bias, persuasion, I think everyone agrees that there's something less than optimal about our system as it exists. Uh, what do you what do you ascribe the the main dysfunction to at this point? How is it broken
1: and this is the heart of my book. The deeper I got into the Machinery, so to speak. And now at this point, I would consider myself either friends or friendly with dozens of political figures, uh, most of them on the Democratic side, because I I ran as a Democrat. Um, But you know, all of these people, and you start to get a sense of the environment that they operate within, why we're stuck, really. And so I I do want to go back to some first principles because I've been learning myself about some things that i would taken for granted. But the core argument in my book is that people will do what their incentives demand. Hmm. And if you are a political figure today, your incentives are to generally cater to the most polarized and extreme points of view in voters in your district, because that's who's uh, going to vote you back in. One numerical contrast that I cite is that Congress has a 28% approval rating nationwide right now, which probably doesn't surprise anyone listening to this. It's like, yeah, three out of four of us don't think things are going well. The individual reelection rate for members of Congress is 92%. Yeah. So even though seven out of 10 of us are really, really sad <laughs> with how things are going, uh, you're almost assured of reelection. If you decide to run, which most of them do, because they, they really like this job, the people that will decide whether you come back are not the mainstream public, but the 10 to 20 percent most extreme voters in either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, because 83 percent of the congressional districts are now safely Democratic or Republican. So your incentives are to be less reasonable and more ideological. And unfortunately, that's what we're seeing on both sides which is leading us to this historic level of polarization that we all can feel that is resulting in political violence and could end up being a new civil war that ends up bringing down our democracy as it currently exists.
0: I just want to reiterate your, your opening point about the power of incentives, because what, when viewed from outside, there, there are so many institutions and there's so many human dramas where you, where you where it's very easy to believe that the people involved who are doing these inexplicably stupid heinous things either are sociopaths or uh, malignantly selfish or total morons and it's very easy to believe the worst of the individuals involved until you have some insight into the system in which they're forced to function. And if it's a system where the incentives are terrible, even very good people, very competent people, very smart people, wind up doing disastrously stupid, destructive, and even seemingly evil things. It's not to say there aren't narcissists and incompetents and people who you wouldn't want in power in these systems, but It's got to be, for the most part, a story of decent, fairly competent people incentivized terribly by the system that's in place.
1: That's exactly right, Sam. And a result of understanding this is that we should not expect it to change or get any better, (laughs) Mm -hmm. because people will, uh, if anything, the incentives are higher now than they've ever been. And the political incentives toward the extremes are now compounded by the media. Which at this point is separating us into ideological camps and ginning up support for the good guys and you know h- hatred for the bad guys. And then pouring gasoline on the whole thing is social media, <laughs> which obviously is going to reward uh, the most inflammatory uh, and aggressive language and behavior. So we're being set up. We're mm-hmm. being set up to turn on each other, to eventually end up disintegrating in terms of the society we, we currently regard as, you know, like a normal, safe environment. And that's what I concluded from my journey into this, which is that these people are not bad people. Some of them are not great people. But like, for the most part, they're, they're reasonable people mm. responding to perverse incentives. And so then the great project becomes, how can you in real life improve their incentives? And I do want to give a shout out to you, and this is something that is a major theme of the book, is that it, to me, you represent the antidote in many ways, Sam. It's like, what are the you know media incentives for you? I mean, you're just like a highly reasoned individual. <laughs> like you don't have the same, uh, you know, I don't think your producer is uh, giving you a list of people not to talk to or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's like a search right now. People are groping for trusted perspectives and voices more and more. And I, I just want to thank you personally for being uh, such a, a huge figure uh, for people who are looking for wisdom and truth, really.
0: Oh, well, it's, it's great to hear. And um, I happen to be in a spot where there are, there are almost no incentives that aren't of my own making, you know, and I have consciously designed my life that way, and it's, uh, you know, it's not that it's impossible to um, be badly incentivized even in this space, but it's much harder, and it's, you know, and that's why I'm here, and it's, it's a relief, frankly, to be able to say whatever I want to say, and to talk to whoever I want to talk to, and to not be calibrating any of that against any kind of outside pressure, you know, even pressure from my audience, and I don't know how much you followed me down these various byways, but you know, whenever I've discovered that a significant percentage of my audience really disagrees with me about something, that's the one, the one signal for me that I need to take pains not to be trained by in any way. Because I, mean, I, I notice other people being captured by their audience in various ways. Uh, you know, I, I just have never wanted that. So when I discovered that, a, you know, a significant percentage of my audience I never really drilled down to what it was, but it, it seemed like something like 20% favored Trump for reasons that I, I still cannot fathom. I just made it a point to not care how much pain I got from them every time I wanted to trample on Trump because I, I just, it, it felt important. And so it is with the equally large percentage of my audience that is very far to the left and hates everything I have to say about wokeness and identity politics. The pain I get from them I, I I have decided to take as noise rather than signal because i it, it just it's just very important for me to preserve my my freedom to say what I think is true and important rather than to be course correcting based on what's rewarding me from my audience and, and what what you get on on any of these pain points and this is this is obviously amplified by social media is there's so much more energy from the haters than from the people who agree with you, that it really, you, you can really get blown around by... It's, it's highly disproportionate. The noise, Yeah, yes. like it,
1: Yeah, if someone's virulently opposed, it just seems like the most prominent thing in the world, even though there could be a hundred people who just silently nodded.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're living in the system where it's something you know, less than 10% of any population can really steer... The conversation on a polarizing issue because they just have so much more energy. They, I mean, so we've got these various activist groups on the left, and we've got you know all the noise that comes out of Trumpistan and you know the most extreme voices uh, over there. You do get the sense that on many points, you have a lot of reasonable people that have been cowed into silence and therefore aren't influencing the conversation. And and, and it's just and the media doesn't seem to Care except I mean the media just they just keep am- amplifying the extremes.
1: Well, again, that's where their incentives are. I mean, they've figured out that their ratings will be higher, and their ad revenue will be higher if they cater to a particular point of view and then reinforce it. Yeah. Uh, there was an anecdote about a cable TV producer who said, "Look, our people don't even regard us as news. They regard us as comfort." which then will justify all sorts of <laughs> the things that you might do journalistically if you're like, hey, it turns out we're not uh, even reporting the news here. you know. And, and the fact that you have to take such great pains, I mean, you're acutely aware of the kind of pressures that some of these media figures and organizations would be under. But in their case, they don't have to you know, self-regulate to that extent. They'll just be like, oh, what? Like my people like this, let me give them more of that, and then you'll be thanked for it and paid more for it.
0: Yeah. At the political level, what are the reforms that you think will really change the system and the pressures that are on all of the all of the the various parties here?
1: I'm happy to say that I can use a real-life example that you're going to love, Sam. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) This isn't my book because it didn't happen yet. But there was a handful of Republican senators who decided to impeach Trump. And only one of them is up for re-election in 2022. And that is Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. She decided to impeach Trump. She said enough is enough. Republicans in Alaska... Completely disagreed with her. She now has an approval rating of 6% among Alaskan Republicans. (laughs) (laughs) So so this is a very clear illustration of the reason why Republicans don't go against Trump. Now, last year in 2020, Alaska changed its process so that there is no party primary there's an open primary where all Alaskans can vote. So if Senator Murkowski had to go through a Republican primary, she'd obviously lose because she has 6% approval. But in an open primary, she actually has a chance to win because many Alaskans regard her as very reasonable and like her and voted for her uh, last time. And so this is a systems change that has dramatically shifted her ability to exercise her independent judgment, I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that they've gone hand in hand where her saying that Trump is wrong and impeaching him probably had something to do with the fact that she knew she didn't have to go through a Republican primary. Mm -hmm. And this happened in Alaska via a ballot initiative. It turns out that there are 24 other states aside from Alaska that also would allow you to shift to open primaries and rank choice voting, which would, by the way, completely transform these perverse incentives we're talking about. Because instead of having to worry about what the 20% most extreme voters in my district think, I would then try to cater to 51% of voters, which would all of a sudden dramatically improve people's reasonableness and desire to compromise and shy away from extreme points of view that they think would alienate uh, swath of, of voters. So what they did in Alaska is something that we should emulate around the country, and that is shift to open primaries and rank choice voting in the general.
0: Mm. So you just mentioned in 22 other states, 24 other states?
1: 24 other states, that's right.
0: What, so this actually wouldn't require legislation. This was just, these are just ballot initiatives that could open the primaries.
1: Yeah, imagine this, if you're listening to this, where you see our society and polit- um, politics descending into madness, essentially, and we can fix it if enough of us get together and pass ballot initiatives to release them from their perverse incentives. There's nothing in the Constitution about any of these party primates. There's actually nothing in the Constitution about political parties, period, because mm-hmm. the founders hated political parties. They would be very, very shocked and horrified at this dysfunctional duopoly that we have been riding into the ground <laughs> over this last over uh, of years. And so it's completely up to the states how to conduct their primaries. And half of the states enable you to change it via ballot initiative.
0: I know we spoke about it last time, but I think we should probably remind people what rank choice voting is and, and why it changes the game. What is it? And where does it exist? I mean, uh, and, uh, because it did exist in your uh, mayoral run in New York. I don't know how long it's been a part of uh, local New York politics, but I mean, where is it and, and, and what is it?
1: Ranked choice voting is a superior voting system that enables different points of view to emerge. And one thing I, I do want to say, Sam, is that New York City did use ranked choice voting in the mayoral primary, but it was still a closed party primary. Mm-hmm. Like only Democrats voted. So that's better, uh, but still not ideal. Um, where if you are Republican or independent, you should also have gotten to vote, especially in this case, because that primary does essentially determine who's going to win uh, in the general, as is the case in a lot of races. Right. So the way ranked choice voting works is that you can show up. And you can rank between one and five candidates. So if you just like one candidate, just vote for that candidate and walk out. Uh, but if you like multiple candidates, then you can vote for up to five. And the winner is determined by whoever gets over 50% of first place votes. So if you were to have, let's say, 10 candidates, 10 candidates in a race, you count all the first place votes. No one has 50%, which is very likely if you had 10 candidates then what you do is you look at the last place candidate and you say, okay, who did these people vote for second? And then you reallocate those voters votes to their next choice. Mm -hmm. And you repeat this process until someone has over 50%. So in this way, you would end up one, getting rid of the spoiler effect, because now you can't get yelled at saying like, oh, you're going to waste your vote on the person who's not going to win. It's like, well, I can vote for the minor party candidate first and just have uh, it go to a major party candidate second because then if my person doesn't win, then my vote will still just flow to the next person. So it gets rid of the spoiler effect. It enables new parties and points of view to emerge. It discourages negative campaigning because if I trash you, then we both end up looking bad and then the third candidate will probably do relatively better. It can encourage different coalitions because let's say I'm a contender and doing well and there's a minor candidate who has a little bit of support. Maybe I'll take their signature issue with their blessing and say, hey, like if you liked that candidate, maybe you can like me too. So this process would dramatically improve the representation and incentives and also enable political dynamism because you can't get bludgeoned over the head saying, can't waste your vote. You're going to screw it up for someone else. All of a sudden, you can express your point of view more fully. And I do want to use another real-life example. If ranked choice voting had been used in the Republican Party primary during Trump's nomination, he probably doesn't win because Mm. there were a lot of people that did not like Trump during that process, but he was getting, let's call it, 38 40% of the vote. And then the other candidates were splitting the other 60%. But if you'd had ranked choice voting, you might have found that not over 50 percent of people really liked Trump because it seemed to be kind of an all or nothing uh, affection where he's concerned.
0: Yeah. But one other thing to say about open primaries is that um, I think it's true to say that there are more independents than there are Democrats or Republicans, right, at this point. And they're excluded from primaries.
1: That's right. Nationally, and I have a feeling your listeners reflect this, Sam. I just have that feeling. (laughs) But right now, independents are the most numerous political group in the country, about 44%. And then Democrats and Republicans are generally somewhere in the mid to high 20s. Now, if you're an independent, you often feel forced to vote for one or the other. And I'm going to suggest that that's what we should change. That we have to stop being bludgeoned with the fact that here are your two choices. You, have, you, you can't waste your vote, so don't vote for anyone else. If you had something like ranked choice voting and open primaries, then you could vote for whoever you wanted, and you would see different perspectives start to emerge that could legitimately challenge the duopoly, because the duopoly is failing us on multiple fronts. I mean, one is because of the polarization and the fact that now we're being pitted against each other, but there's also no Need for them to really perform <laughs> <laughs> because you know that they, they don't have any viable competition
0: yeah I, you know I was going to save discussion of the forward party platform until the end, but it occurs to me that we can bring it in here because I, I want to talk about inequality and we can just get to that when you talk about that part of the platform so let's just jump now to uh, the forward party and what, what how you view it as a um, a possible movement here that can just ram through some of these totally sane changes? What's, what's the plan? What's the aspiration? And, and what's the platform?
1: So let's say that you've listened to this and, and thought, wow, we can actually pass ballot initiative, initiatives that would dramatically improve the incentives of half of our legislators. Let's go do that, which is certainly what I thought <laughs> when I realized yeah. that it was possible. And in the other states, it's still possible too. You would just need conscientious legislators to pass it at state houses, which I'm going to suggest is kind of a higher bar in in some of these places. So the ballot initiative process in each state, it's highly variable in cost. It's less expensive in a place like North Dakota than it would be in California, (laughs) as you could imagine. But the resources necessary To get all the signatures and promote and advertise, then try and get 50.1% of people in that state to approve it. No, it's significant. I mean, you're looking at a real popular movement, and these are in red and blue states. And so I thought to myself, how can we most effectively galvanize people around these ballot initiatives and this vision and realize that it should be from outside the duopoly, which would probably make perfect sense to people, and one of the defining phrases of my campaign was it's not left or right it's forward and so i decided to start the forward party to make these ballot initiatives happen to give rise to open primaries and rank choice voting in states around the country to elevate candidates who support this and existing officials because they are out there but also let people know that we don't have to suffer in this dysfunction any longer than, than we already have. I mean, we can be fixed on actually amending the incentives of our broken system. So I've launched the Forward Party. I'm super excited about it. It had, does have a number of other tenets aside from open primaries and ranked choice voting. But that is really the first major step in enabling any real dynamism and competition in our political system. Because what's fun, Sam, is people regard me as fairly rational, which I appreciate a great deal. And people regard third parties as not rational. (laughs) And they regard third parties as not rational because they say, hey, the mechanics are set up in a way to make it impossible. And they have been on the money for the last number of years. But there is now this possibility for change as demonstrated by what's happened in Alaska. And there's also this growing appetite for a real shift in our politics, where the number of Americans that are now for a third party is at a record high. Uh, the last measure I saw was 62%. So think about that. If you arrived in a marketplace and there was a duopoly and 62% of people wanted something new, you'd, you'd want to offer it. So that is the forward party. That is our opportunity to actually move the country in a better direction.
0: Well, I can imagine the the first concern in the minds of many democrats will be that if this movement gained any steam at all despite your best intentions it would serve as some kind of spoiler principle with respect to any you know depending on the time frame it could be as early as next year but in particular with respect to a possible presidential run in 2024 where Trump is once again on the ballot, what do you say to the possibility of this is the absolute wrong time to be considering a third party? If your overriding concern politically is to never see Trump in office again.
1: Some really fascinating articles came out over this past week or so, Sam, uh, that talk about the danger that Trumpism presents, which I agree with. And it talks about the weakness in our system where you can have one of two major parties that is overrun by bad leadership, and then all of the incentives are to stay in line. And in a way, that's kind of a weak and vulnerable system. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it, had, it had a fairly big opportunity for someone like Trump just to run roughshod over one of the two major parties. The goal for all of us should be to make the system itself more resilient from authoritarianism and the best way to do that would be to adopt a more vibrant, multi-party system as quickly as possible. And if you are a Democrat and you see this, one approach could be, oh, we must defeat Trump. And, you know, I, I totally get it. But another approach would be, oh, we should make this system more resilient from any- anyone that comes along, including Trump. But maybe it's not just Trump. And to me, that should be where our energies are directed. And that's a challenge that we should be taking on as quickly as possible, is to try and make the system genuinely more resilient and representative and multipolar. If you look at other countries around the world, the UK has five parties. Sweden has eight parties. Netherlands has 18 parties. And if you have eight parties and then one of them gets overrun by bad leadership, that's a problem, but it's not like an existential problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean. whereas if you have two major parties, then it, it can be an existential problem, and unfortunately, we may be faced with that quite soon
0: so uh, let's talk more about the platform you propose and uh, the in particular, the human centered capitalism side of things and and the economics because um you know you're uh, support for ubi falls squarely here i think the problem in need of remedy is uncontroversial we have this this widening inequality in our society you know which is not just economic but economics is at the center of all of it and there's just this disjunction between the gains in productivity we've seen in recent decades and our quality of life. And you, and you go through this in the book, but you know, what's, your, what's your view of the problem and what would you propose to do about it?
1: The United States is now 28th in the world in core measurements like infant mortality, clean air and clean water, public education, freedom of speech, violence and crime. And these things are the core markers of where we are as a people, and they're getting worse. And right now we're trumpeting and cheerleading stock market prices and GDP growth, while more and more Americans feel like they have no relationship uh, with that version of the economy. Uh, That's driving Trumpism in many environments. And it's driving anger because people's quality of life has been eroding for years and decades. And so to me, this should be the core project of any government is to say, how the heck did the United States of America with all its wealth and resources allow itself to slip to 28th in the world with a down arrow attached to it? And if you were to start making meaningful progress on those problems, then I think you would see our health, our mental health, and our political culture improve. And you're seeing that in some measure right now with the child tax credit and some of the other measures that have been implemented, where about 70 million families, well, 70 million Americans have been receiving this child tax credit, and you're already seeing better ability to learn, better health. The money is getting spent on exactly what you hope it would be, which is nutrition and school supplies. And. Uh, freeing up parents in some cases to spend time with their children. So this is the path forward that we should be trying to build on this cash relief that's been going out. And obviously, I'm a huge believer in universal basic income, in part because I think that the resources would be better spent by people themselves rather than administered by a bureaucracy that would be paternalistic in many cases.
0: It's interesting because the, the aid that the government has rolled out in response to the COVID pandemic, you know, it's not identical to UBI, obviously, but it's importantly similar, as you point out. And I, I think many people worry that what we've witnessed here, I mean, many people who are fans of the concept of UBI are worried that what we're witnessing here is kind of a failed example of UBI or a um, at least showing some of the possible downsides of UBI and, and I'm, I'm interested to know what, what are the differences that would make the difference here because I think we have something like 10 million unfilled jobs at this point and you, you hear that the restaurant industry and, and other similar industries can't find all the workers they need to function. and so there's a picture of people Getting just enough money from the government at this point, where they can decide, you know, I I don't want that job uh, anymore, and I'm and I I don't actually have to take it. And I, I, you know, I I wonder whether there's just uh, you know if there's just a further argument here for improving wages and other you know other variables. But it's not a patently obvious picture of success when you look at the knock-on effects to the rest of the economy.
1: Well, Sam, I think we should distinguish between the, the child tax credit, which is having inc- extraordinarily positive results according to, let's say, 448 economists who just signed a letter saying we should keep this going forever because mm-hmm. of so many of the positive outcomes, and the enhanced unemployment and other programs that have almost certainly had a, an impact on what you're describing in terms of the labor market and unfilled jobs. The problem is that in the latter category, we are attaching this money to your being unemployed. Right. <laughs> where, 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 and I know young people who are on this right now, and they're receiving, uh, let's call it $500, $600 a week um, on the condition that they are not employed. Yeah. And, yeah, and so if you're in that position, I've talked to 25 year olds in this boat, they're looking at me being like, Hey, like, obviously I'm just going to like hang out until <laughs> until this thing runs out. Right. And, and then you look at it would be like, yeah, that's a rational behavior. The, but the, the problem really is and again, it's being tied to not working. Yeah. If that money were, uh, let's say a little bit lower than 500, you know, I think In some cases, uh, it's a little higher than you would be administering university. So if they were getting my plan of a thousand bucks a month, and by the way, they could keep it on top of whatever they earned, if they decided to take a job part-time, full-time, whatever, I think you'd see different behaviors than here's money, but you only get it if you don't work.
0: Hmm. What about um, some concerns around the possible inflationary effect Of this kind of support? I know Larry Summers has been out there worrying quite um, volubly about inflation in response to uh, how much money is being pumped into the system, and I, I don't know if he's tied it directly to a conception of UBI proper, but I could imagine he would be worried about the same effect. How does that stack up as a concern or a reason why not to implement UBI?
1: Right now, from what I've seen, the majority of the inflation has been because our supply chain is messed up. And so if you can't get stuff, then the stuff you do get, you end up increasing mm-hmm. the prices of uh, in, in various ways. The vast majority of the money that's gotten pumped into the economy has not been to individuals and families. I think about 17% of the CARES Act went into human beings' hands and uh, you know 83% went into various institutions. So to the extent we're seeing inflation right now, uh, it's, it's being driven by disruptions uh, in the economy. Uh, from, what, from what I've seen, I'm someone who is very responsive to data. So if you were to do something and you were to see various effects, then you, know, you, you might want to calibrate. But I, I don't think it's because people have so much money to spend that they're driving up prices. It's that there's just mm-hmm. not enough stuff to go around. And so the stuff that is out there uh, goes up in price.
0: Yeah, I mean, this, there's this, that other piece you just flagged, which is how incompetently all of this aid was administered. There certainly was an argument for certain institutions being, receiving money rather than, than individuals, but you know, the bad incentives and just the incompetent execution, I mean, all the, the people who most needed money couldn't get it in many cases. I remember you know one of the selling points of UBI from your point of view is that one thing the government is good at is just cutting checks but <laughs> the truth is we don't even seem to be that good at cutting checks at the moment I mean we just uh, we we don't have a digitally native truly agile way to just ha- get yeah, people we're, money we're, t- t- you know tomorrow morning when when we need to
1: We're using the IRS <laughs> which mm. Has its ups and downs in terms of a distribution pipe. And, and I said in the book how I talked to Ben Bernanke, um, and he suggested that we give everyone a Fed account and then we could just put the money in your account if we decided it was a good idea. Um, so we're using the IRS, which is not designed for it. It misses a lot of people, including a lot of people at the low end, to your point, Sam, who really needed the money. Because if you're really poor, a lot of the times you don't file taxes. You know, <laughs> you like made yeah. a bit le- less than that. And so it's a real failure of the government on a couple of fronts. And the failure is even worse when you look at some of the tailored programs. And I've been very angry about this rental assistance program that the government put something like $67 billion into. So in theory, okay, going to help renter $67 billion. And then they checked back eight months later. And only 17% of the money had actually been administered by city and local governments because the federal government had kind of left it to the locality to figure out how to get the renters the the money. And lo and behold, they didn't do it. And so then you have 2.6 million renters who theoretically were supposed to get money that didn't get money and are now probably going to get evicted and the rest of it. And when you see a, a colossal failure like that on the part of government, Does anyone lose their job? Does anyone, uh, you know, get held accountable? Is anyone, like, sorry? Of course not. But, you know, there are millions of Americans that at least theoretically were supposed to get that money. So uh, it's one reason why I I am a a huge fan of something like a UBI, because we're still exceptionally good at sending money relative to the other things that we claim to want to do for people. In a way, the more you can simplify things for government, <laughs> the, hmm. the, 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 the happier we'll be and the better the results will be.
0: All right, so what is, um, what's the future of the Forward Party? What, it, what can people do? Where can they, they find it? You must have a website. What's the ask of my audience and any other audience?
1: Well, first, if you do want to dig into my experiences in terms of the system's dysfunction and why we need to mend and amend our political system, please do check out the book for The Argument for the Forward Party. It's called Forward. And then if you've already heard enough and you want to support the Forward Party, uh, go to forwardparty.com or andrewyang.com and let's build this movement together. I, I know that this is the group that's going to do it because the people that follow Sam are students of reason, of rationality. Not huge fans of tribalism. And this is exactly what we need to build. We need to build a movement of people who just want to solve the problems and believe in universality, believe that we are still all human beings at the end of the day.
0: All right, I'm going to ask the obvious question, which uh, I think you you may be reluctant to answer at this point, but uh, don't let my telepathy uh, push you around too much. Do you think you're going to run for office again?
1: I'm going to do whatever I can to help Sam. I'm certainly not someone, and I think you picked this up on me the first time we met. Like I'm not someone who has some kind of deep seated uh, desire for political office, (laughs) (laughs) you know. And there were aspects of running for office that I absolutely loved, Um, and then there are aspects that were quite difficult, and so. I'm taking it day by day in terms of figuring out how I can make the most difference. But we all know that our country's not doing well. And thanks to to you and some other people, I feel like I'm in a fairly narrow group of individuals who might be able to help. So that's what I'll be trying to do to the best of my ability.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you are impressively networked at this point. I mean, I can only imagine. And so it's you know, this is really not as much of a pipe dream as it might seem to anyone on the outside you know hearing this for the first time i mean you you know you have a lot of friends who have a lot of friends at this point and you're about as plugged in as as anyone and it's it certainly doesn't take all that many people to raise a ton of money and it's and it doesn't take all that many minds in need of changing to fundamentally birth a um a, a new movement and a, a new direction we might all take together. You know, th- that's numbered in the thousands, right? That's not, we're not talking about millions in the end. So anyway, you you know some of these people, I know some of these people, and uh, I'm rooting for you. And uh, however I can be of help, uh, just uh, let me know. I, I'm still waiting for that, the uh, celebratory uh, meal when, when, uh, <laughs> when, when you occupy some office somewhere. So wh- whether or not it's you or, or someone we just mutually like. It'll be fun when it happens.
1: We're going to have that meal, my friend. We're going to have that meal.
0: Well, thanks again, Andrew. Good luck with the book.
1: Thank you so much, Sam.